RCR with Chantal Baker, Reality Check Radio. Today on the Chantal Baker Show, we're going to talk about a report that tells us there is something horribly wrong going on in New Zealand. And there is something horribly wrong going on. But it's not what this report says, it's what the report pretends to be. It's a report that says we're in the midst of a genocide against trans people. Now, I don't know about you, but the word genocide sends chills up my spine, and I suspect that is exactly what it's meant to do. It's meant to frighten people, it's meant to anger people, and when you look around and don't see any actual genocide happening, you realise that it's meant to divide people, and most importantly, it's meant to silence people. I'm talking about the Disinformation Project and its recent report titled Transgressive Transitions by of course, Sanjana, and Kate Hanna, and Kayla Taylor. Inside, this report paints a picture of New Zealand at a war over trans rights. A portrait of New Zealanders engaged in a battle of hate towards the trans community that now lives in constant fear for their lives. But the problem is, none of this is actually happening. And while in their report they say online hate is driving real-world violence, the only place that is happening... And is the report itself and the sycophantic news reports about it. The reality is that this report is actually fueling violence and anger and division like this country has never seen before. This is the narrative of hate that drove the violent mob at Auckland's Albert Park. When Kelly Jane Minchell was doused in tomato juice and hounded off the rotunda by a horde of trans activists yelling Nazi, but acting like Nazi brown shirts themselves. And it's this narrative of intolerance for different views that is driving a wedge between New Zealanders and fueling a narrative that calls for censorship and an end of, to freedom of speech. As Lindsay Perigo said earlier this week on Reality Check Radio, they who wish to destroy democracy must destroy free speech first. And make no mistake, that is really what is going on here. It's time to stop pretending this isn't happening. It's time to examine the harms the trans-focused medical industry is doing to our young people. It's time to recognise that the word genocide is being co-opted in a disgusting way to drive this agenda. And it's time to start acknowledging that the ideology of Kate Hanna and the rest of the Disinformation Project is a Marxist ideology. And that this report is part of a larger attack on New Zealand's culture and way of life. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about this and add some balance to the hysteria of the report and the news media. I'm Chantal Baker. You're listening to The Chantal Show. And I want to welcome my wonderful co-host and producer, Alistair Harding. Alistair, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Chantal. Um, we've talked about this story already, eh? We, we talked about it a number of weeks ago when the Posey Parker incident happened. And we also talked about it in our show about the trust in media, didn't we? Yeah, we have. We've talked about this before and about how they set up certain situations to portray narratives that they want you to believe, regardless of if they're true or not. And so it's a gross misbalance of power and misuse of power that we're seeing in so-called academic circles um, that I argue are nothing but activist circles. Yeah, and, and they're using the media... It's, it's a really interesting way of looking at it because they'll put out these ideas, the media reports on them, gives it credibility and amplifies it, and then in the end, this report is all about like tying it up with a nice little bow, isn't it, to, to make it sound academic. 
And it's, it's like they're producing a package uh, of information that I suppose we're all spo- supposed to now believe, isn't it? Yeah, and it's tied, like you said, it's tied up with a nice little bow on it. And it's a small group Mm. of people that are consistently referenced and they're referenced as being some sort of individual, um, independent academic group. But all of their content, they effectively have no references and quite often they just reference a random news article often written by one of their allies or they reference Mm. their own work. So it's the most disingenuous display of what is meant to be independent research that I think New Zealand's ever seen. Yeah, and, and they present themselves as dispassionate and independent. They, they make a big deal about calling themselves independent. But there's nothing independent, really, about the way that they, they go about it. It is, it is actually a conspiracy between people, I think. You look at the, the news reports that were put out around this whole report, and the first one I looked at was from Stuff on the 5th of May. And we'll, we'll get to another one too from the 5th of May, the same day in the New Zealand Herald. But we'll come to that later on in the show. But this one in Stuff was by a woman called Hannah McCallum. Mm-hmm. And it was targeted, most violent targeting of any community, the aftermath of Posey Parker's visit. And what it is, is it's a report, almost verbatim, of what the disinformation projects say in their report. So it really is, it's just taking what the disinformation project write and then just reporting it word for word with no questioning, no balance, nothing. And so I can't help but think that they are working together. Yeah, and it's interesting because I spoke with other journalists before and they have said that this does happen in New Zealand. So different news organisations do get together and talk about stories that they want to present to the public, which is unusual when you claim to be independent, but you're working as part of a kind of co-opted group. And we've seen Sanjana and people that are his apparent allies who are hardcore activists here in New Zealand, such as Dudley Benson, brag online about how they go to coffee meetups and they have conversations. So the disinformation... Really? Yes. And so that's someone who's linked with Antifa. That's someone who has um, screamed at protesters that are uh, pro-freedom before. He's really anti-freedom. He um, kept vaccine passports up in his bar long past it was due. And he's bragged online about how he goes for coffees and how they give him advice. So you've got this group of people that are saying they're independent and yet they are friends and driving the most hardcore activists that New Zealand has. Yeah, and look, you can see that actually that it, it makes a lot of sense what you just said because you can see it when you look at these news stories, this, this particular one that I mentioned from Stuff on the 5th of May by Hannah McCallum. She's talking about the um, Posey Parker tour when she was in Melbourne and then she came to Auckland. And the first paragraph reads, While far-right members gave Nazi salutes at British anti-trans activist Posey Parker's Melbourne rally, Kate Hanna and her fellow researchers watched, documenting New Zealand's disinformation networks. And it all sounds very dangerous and very, um, it's something that we have to talk about very urgently because we're talking about Nazis and anti-trans activists. But let's, let's really look at, look at that paragraph properly. First, there's actually no evidence that any of those far-right members that were giving those Nazi salutes were actually part of the event. And it actually seems more likely, I think, that since they were masked, that they were actually planted there. Because if you really feel that strongly about your far-right tendencies that you're willing to turn up to a public rally and give Nazi salutes, why would you cover your faces? 
but it just it just smells to me like there's nothing that substantiates them actually being for real. And secondly, Kelly J herself has never suggested anything. She's actually expressed her disgust towards Nazism. So why are they in this story linking her to the Nazis to to, to Nazism? I, so to me, it's just filled with disinformation right from the very beginning, which is incredible that it's coming from the disinformation project themselves. Well, I mean, I think they're aptly names and more and more people are starting to see this here in New Zealand. This is a group that produces disinformation on a mass scale because disinformation mm. is something that is created with the intent of causing harm to someone else. And every piece that they do, they are intending to cause Kelly J. Keane's reputation harm by pretending that she's a Nazi sympathizer. Meanwhile, they have absolutely no of it. So this is, by its very essence, a disinformation producing entity. And that is what they do consistently. They have done it consistently over the last few years. I personally love their name. I think it suits them absolutely to a T. And I mean, a huge a huge piece of disinformation that came up during Kelly J. Keane's visit here was when they tried to pretend that her opening and closing her zipper was somehow using a white supremacy symbol because she was playing with her zipper. Now, if this group cared, if they truly cared about being an independent so-called disinformation uh, study group, they would bring up these examples on the opposite side, but they never do because they're activists and they need to serve a specific ideology. That's right. That's right. They, they never provide any, any proof at all. And you see it in the report and you see it in these, these media stories as well. There is zero proof cited in any of these stories. Um, except for, I note here, except for a quote from Kate Hanna from the Disinformation Project, which says, much of the content was too violent and featured harm too graphic to include. So they're talking about things that they refuse to show us. And we're <laughs> supposed to just believe it. Now, if it was really an academic report, you have the little citations, right? You know, that's where you see number one, number two, number three, and all of that. And down the bottom of the page is the evidence of where it's from. You even see that on Wikipedia, mm. but not in the disinformation report uh, project's report on this particular thing. There is one line, though, that is extremely accurate, I think, that I found in this report. And I quote, it says... People are being suckered and manipulated, which is really, really, really distressing. And I suppose that's that sort of sums it up. They, they're manipulating a lot of people in New Zealand right now. And it's interesting because they're very upset that they, they try to pretend that it's Nazis. It's not about Nazis. They're upset that there's a large group of people in New Zealand that are more focused on women's rights than they are on allowing biological women, men sorry, into women's spaces. This group does not like that. They want all spaces to be fluid and open very clearly because that's the direction that their research leads itself towards. They don't want to protect women's rights. They're focused very heavily on a small group of people that want to ensure that the rights for women are not protected. Yeah, and I think personally I feel like it's a little bit even darker than that and we'll, we'll get to that in a little while. Um, but, you know, this is... To me, when you look at that Posey Parker event at Albert Park in Auckland, there were two people that ended up being charged by the police that day. Yep. And they were both on this, the, Kate Hanna and Sanjana Hatatua's um, side of the debate. Um, these people are not mentioned at all in this report. So if we are talking about violence and we are talking about an academic report, then we need to start talking with balance. 
Um, and this is not what I see in this report. And I suppose this, this is what we're doing today is taking it. And yes, we do criticize it, but it is in the act of giving balance to it, is it not? Yeah, and I I agree. They never focus like this is something that that frustrates me because I think if you want to claim independence, you have to look at both sides. That's how everything has to be. You always have to look at both sides of the argument. And in this particular argument, especially here with Posey Parker, there was only one group of people that were charged with assault that day, and it was trans protesters against biological women, including a 70-year-old lesbian lady who was punched in the face by a biological man. And these people have been charged, they've gone to court, but yet apparently that doesn't matter because words online are more important than actual physical harm. Really, when you're talking about those examples that you just mentioned there, it's they're getting in the way. So that's why it's not actually happening. That's how we know it's not actually very academic. But what they're trying to do is they they set the scene. uh, At the beginning of the report, they set the scene by talking about how there's something called community bridging Mm. that has occurred. And what that is, it's saying that we have been, as as people that were in Wellington, you and I and, and everyone else that was there, we have been bridged from one topic to another topic, from COVID protesting, anti-mandate protesting to anti-trans protesting. And they're trying to point out that they can chart the progress from one to the other. And they've been looking at telegram books and uh, telegram groups and Facebook and Instagram and all these other social media networks to try and find ways to link us all together with this one conspiracy string, I suppose, and which, which is labeled far-right extremism. <laughs> I don't think that's even close. I think it's hilarious. I think it's so entertaining because you had people that were pro-freedom and this group is clearly anti-freedom, the Disinformation Project, it is a group of anti-freedom, anti-women's rights activists that portray independent research. So it's very entertaining for me because they come out and they say there's been community bridging, but they jump to extremes on every single topic. I mean, to say that a a pro-women's rights activist is somehow a Nazi, um, anti-trans, far-right extremist, how much more community bridging can you do than jumping to try it? They've said the same thing about freedom protesters. They say the same thing about every single group they don't like, regardless of their race, regardless of their history, regardless of their voting past, regardless of any words that anyone has actually said. They jump the communities and they try to pretend that everyone is in the same pot together of far-right extremism. And I don't think these people even know what far-right extremism is because according to Kate Hanna, one of her very own examples she used of far-right extremism when I went to hear her talk was people that believe in a a nuclear family, which is a mum, a dad and children. To this lady, that is far-right extremism. And so anyone who talks about anything that promotes the traditional family, we're all extremists. So these people have well and truly lost the plot on what it means to be an independent researcher. I think really what they're doing with trying to link the two together, the anti-mandate protesters and and this, is what they're really signalling is to anyone who's watching on, look, remember those people were bad before? Mm. Well, they're bad here as well. So they're actually just signalling which side of the argument you're 
is acceptable to fall on, isn't it? Yeah, it's socially, sit over this side, you'll be accepted, any other side, we're going to vilify you, we're going to try and destroy your reputation, we're going to drag you over the coals, because you are playing a game that we don't accept, and that is to speak up and to have an opposing view. Yeah, and I guess that's in the end why we're sitting here today doing this, because um, that's what they did to you all the way through from the protests all the way through to now, haven't they? I mean, I found this, I found it uh, quite funny because we've gone to a stage where I've gone from being, um, in their words, you know, they try to express that I'm some sort of unhinged nutcase to somehow now I'm a Russian spy. So I don't know if they've found me suddenly growing in terms of my intelligence or if they're trying to pretend that, no, 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 this is why she is, in, you know, for them, this is why she has so much, so many people that follow her or listen to her. It's because she's a Russian spy and this is all calculated. Mm. I mean, they are hardcore conspiracy theorists, but yet they say that they hate conspiracies, but they're allowed to be part of large conspiracy theories if, it's so, if it suits their narrative. Yeah, and, you know, Going back to the report, that's exactly what they're doing. Overall, the the range of information that they're trying to say is problematic is basically anything that you can put the word anti in front of. I'll, mm. I'll quote from here from the report. The disinformation project now studies a diverse and dynamic disinformation ecosystem preoccupied with misogyny, reactionary ideas about the role of woman, anti-LGBTQIA+, the rejection of science, anti-government, anti-establishment, anti-Maori, anti-co-governance, anti-immigration, and all of this d- drives destabilization of social cohesion. Now, I'd like to say two things here. Number one, I don't see how anti-establishment, anti-Maori, anti-co-governance has anything to do with trans activism. Um, so how they, they're just basically throwing the net, casting the net as far and wide as possible just to say, if you're anti any of these things then you're one of the people we're trying to silence here and you're a bad person. And then at the, that last line that drives destabilization and social cohesion, I kind of look at all of this and I just think, well, this is all this report is all about. It's trying to divide people. It's trying to make people angry. That's all it's about, is it not? I find it interesting that they care about misogyny, but yet they're fine with men putting on lipstick, pretending that womanhood is absolutely nothing but a dress and claiming womanhood for themselves. Yet apparently this group cares about misogyny. If they cared about misogyny, they would deeply care about women's rights and women's spaces and want to help protect those as much as possible, and they don't. Yeah, and and like that instance at Albert Park, which they center a lot of this around as their so-called evidence, I suppose. They falsely call her an anti-transgender activist. Mm. I mean, this is pure disinformation at its worst. She's nothing of the sort. None of this, none of the context they provide mentions the violence that actually led to Kelly J being, uh, being evacuated from there under police protection. Mm. None of it mentions the 70-year-old lady getting punched in the face or the tomato juice being thrown. They do not know how to have a conversation which equally balances both sides, do they? No, and it's and I think this is actually coming through from schools and from universities because there's this idea being pushed that only one perspective is the right perspective and anyone outside of that is crazy and we should never have a conversation with them. 
And unfortunately, that whole concept is only growing stronger and stronger as that's been pushed through the education system. And so I think that that's what these people would really love to be in control of. I think they would love to control what the younger people are being taught and what they're allowed to think and how they're allowed to have discussions in order to maintain the status quo currently, which is listen to us, ignore everybody else. If they try and have a conversation, we will silence them. I always remember a few years ago them talking about um, in with in reference to cases the Pizzagate case over in the United States mm. where people always talked about how online rhetoric can lead to real world consequences and that's again the same trope that they're marching out with this report and they're talking about how all of these instances that they're talking about are leading to real world violence against the trans community. We don't see any evidence of that. But there was real-world violence. There was real-world violence there towards really was, women. Wasn't there? So they are pushing but not in for real-world violence. No, but they, but that's because it doesn't suit their narrative. If they cared about violence, they would care about, care about all violence. They don't. And I think that's the key there, what you just said there. It doesn't fit their narrative. So nothing is going to stand in the way of them telling a story, A, B, C, D. Mm. And you know, that, that's why the whole Marama Davidson thing sort of got in the way just a little bit and, and that sort of distracted them a little bit. Um, so anyway, my point that I'm just wanting to make with this is that there are real-world consequences of this, but it's not the real-world consequences that they're talking about in this report, isn't it? Yeah, and this is what we will go to next because I think it's really important that we do look at the real-world harm that is happening. Who are the people that are actually being hurt by this ideology, what does that look like and how can we then try and support what is the real problem here in New Zealand as opposed to some fictional fairy tale problem that this group wants to pretend exists? So my next interview, and I'm very thankful to have such a wonderful person to speak to, is Jennifer Scott. So Jennifer Scott has been taken, her job has been taken from her as a registered nurse because she spoke out against her concerns when it came to puberty blockers and the real world harm that this is inflicting on the young people of New Zealand. So very thankful to have her here to educate us more on what is going wrong in the medical system, in the healthcare system, when it comes to children and their access to what the government likes to pretend is gender-affirming care. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining me and Alistair to talk through what's going on with puberty blockers and with what they call um, gender-affirming care here in New Zealand. Really appreciate you giving us your time. Thank you. That's right. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about your background in nursing? Um, I have been a registered nurse for around seven, eight years. Um, I've worked in mental health for about three, four years um, here in New Zealand, and I've worked in Australia um, doing general medical and paediatrics. Um, and I've travelled extensively in um, Europe and, yeah. What drove you to have concerns about what was happening within the gender-affirming care sector of nursing? All oh, right. So, yeah, that's when we um, fall down the rabbit hole, really, because I was watching internationally what was happening online with the feminists and um, women's rights in the world. And it was the issue of trans and um, yeah, males identifying as being women was the main concern. And then it kind of like spiraled down to um, impacting children and how that was um, working. So at the time, um, in 2018, the Ministry of Health, they released these guidelines 
um, across all um, district health boards. So as a good little nurse I was, I printed it out um, and got it all nice and put it on the shelf. I never actually read all the way through it. And if I had of, I would have seen the puberty blockers section at the back of the book. So it wasn't until 2021 that I was like, okay, well, if the trans issue is happening overseas for new females, then is it happening here in New Zealand? And um, it was. And that was devastating to go, wow, thanks, Jacinda. Like, look at what you've um what you've done to us females here. Um, so then I yeah, fell down the the puberty blocker side of things, really, and um yeah, found that we do use puberty blockers in New Zealand. Um, GNRHAs, we use uh, Lupron, um, and that's to give to children with gender dysphoria. So um, I wanted to uh, reference and quote um, Jan Rivers from the news, uh, one of the um, articles that was recently released um, with 703 children are currently on puberty blockers in New Zealand at the moment. And so um, I think a lot of people think, oh, there's something going on in the rainbow community. I don't really know what it's all about. And there's this whole trans issue and the trans debate. Um, and this is what really essentially what it is all about. Um, and I knew from watching internationally that females or anyone really um, in the medical field who speaks up about this, then the cancel culture takes place, um, the disinformation, misinformation, um, and all those words that go along with it are put placed on to me. Can you talk me through medically what actually happens when a young woman takes puberty blockers such as Lupron? So Lupron, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but from what I remember, Lupron is used over in the United States to chemically castrate sex offenders. So how does that same drug work when it's put into um, small children here in New Zealand? Yep. So um, what happens is... Um, uh, when we are developing um, from a child to an adult, then we go through tenor stage one, two, and three. Um, so the first tenor stage one and two, like 11 and 12, is when um, a male will be getting his secondary sex characteristics um, with a surge of testosterone. Um, and that's to develop all the parts of him that will um, uh, muscle development and also reproductive system. Same with the female as well. We get a surge in estrogen. So puberty blockers um, are stopping that GNRHAs, um, gandrotropin, something releasing hormone. So they're stopping the release of testosterone or estrogen in a female. So when they say um, they were saying that they're safe and fully reversible, that was there's no evidence whatsoever to prove that. So these drugs are also being used um, experimentally. So what does this do to the child? Does it stop them from ever being able to, um, like what, what kind of feelings or what, what does that actually prohibit within the child specifically? Yep, um, it uh, reduces or stops both brain and bone growth. So it's affecting the endocrine system as well. Um, children can feel very tired and lethargic, um, get headaches, they can have dizziness. 
Um, so, yeah, the FDA in America not long ago, they released um, um, information about, yeah, the negative side effects of um, puberty, puberty blockers in children. And there's no limited time frame that children can be on them as well. So it can be six months to a year or so. And then it's about switching them over to um, the opposite sex. So that's called cross-sex hormones. Um, but us um, gender critical or um, radical feminists, um, it's called wrong sex hormones because you're taking the wrong sex hormones. So for a male um yeah, they develop um, breasts, they become more soft in the face and things like that. Um, but also if they were to take it when they're younger, um, they won't actually, their penis won't develop um, because they're not getting the testosterone to develop that. So, yeah, young boys who are placed onto puberty blockers, they never develop a fully grown um, penis. And then for a young girl um, or even a yeah teenage um 20-year-old girl taking testosterone um, that has massive mood swings. Um, within two years being on testosterone, you can um, have to have a um, hysterectomy done. Um, what else? Just females taking testosterone is not going to be, it's not good for us. Yeah. So it's absolutely drastic changes to children. And what is the youngest age that they're putting children on puberty blockers here in New Zealand? Well, that information I don't personally have, and I don't know if we, the people who I could get that information from, would possibly have it. Um, because when we did, I was um, with a group of other people and we were um, working on this topic a lot. And we put out a lot of OIAs to all the district health boards um, to get that information of how many children are on puberty blockers. So that number of 703 probably quite difficult to get all of that. And that probably isn't also the exact number. There could be more than that. Um, because in New Zealand, the, the the crux of it all is that puberty blockers are an unrestricted drug in New Zealand. Um, so a GP can chart them, um, family planning, um, or any other specialist practice. Um, so that's what's really dangerous about it. And um, at the start of 2021, was it 2021? <clears throat> yeah, I was working at the time um, and realised, well, I can see where this is going um, in New Zealand um, regarding the drugs by by them using this book and then also doing the um, sexual education guidelines. Um, so all linked up. Um, then they had the BDMRR bill, which is the Births, Deaths, Marriages and Relationships bill, and then the Conversion Therapy bill. So they were all put together really um, to allow clinicians to do gender transition on um, children here in New Zealand. How does the gender conversion bill, or sorry, because the, they've tried to market it like it's a gay conversion bill, but when I read it, I said, hold up, the media are lying about this bill. It is much more tailored towards uh, gender transitions and to, if a parent speaks out about that, trying to silence them. Did you see, do you understand that bill to a, in a similar way as I have? Yep, definitely. Um, that was the, yeah, the little smokescreen of it all is that it's about, you know, lesbian and gay rights type thing, not telling them that, you know, um, trying to convert them back. It, um, 
But underneath it all, what we've had um, is the insertion of um, different language. And so gender affirmation, gender ideology put into New Zealand legislation that is um, you're conflating sex with gender and then allowing for this gender identity um, ideology to develop here. How do the other nurses feel about this? Is it a discussion that they're allowed to have? Are they silenced from having that? Um, well, a little bit silenced, yep. Some are definitely going along with the propaganda and it's just easier to um, go along with it sometimes. I'm I'm not really sure. Um, but when I was yeah, speaking about this, when I knew internationally that I would get in trouble, I would get I would get name called, um, cancelled or whatever, then I knew that it was a topic that was touchy. But it's it's not a topic that shouldn't be not discussed because it's rearing its ugly head right now. And um, what we really want to, people to know is the the harmful effects of what this trans ideology is really all about, that it's about children um, being medically experimented on here in New Zealand. And then also on the other side, adult males being able to self-identify as being something that they're not and um, intruding into female spaces. Um, I wrote, yeah, so I wrote at the um, start of 21 this document, New Zealand and Gender Dysphoria and Youth, um, yeah, in New Zealand, um, because when I was speaking with um, some um, clinicians, um, psychiatrists and psychologists behind closed doors, um, what we needed was research in New Zealand. They're like, well, what's who's written something in New Zealand and, and in, a, in a healthcare facility about the effects of the political sphere as well impacting a clinician being able to um, probably assess and diagnose someone. And so, yeah, that's what the conversion therapy, going back to that, um, it's trying to scare clinicians away from saying, like going along with a patient's delusion, like it would be appropriate for a psychotherapist to, you know, allow a person the watchful wait to go um you know this person's obviously struggling with their identity and who they are let's dig down a little bit deeper um but what's being pushed is just affirmation and no if you don't affirm me then you know you're a bigot and you're a nazi a turf scum um when that's not really it at all um yeah there's been a lot of discussion internationally about the amount of money that hospitals make when children transition out of puberty blockers and potential surgeries and mental health care. Do you think that that's a driver here in New Zealand or do you think it's just purely that the ideology behind this has grown to be so strong that rather than just being a money aspect, it's actually also now um, more of a, a, a social pressure aspect? Yes, yep, um, definitely. So it's a trend as well in society. And um, yes, the cost of um, someone full medical transition and even for a parent to um, agree to put a child onto ped blockers, um, you're talking in like, yeah, thousands of dollars and tens of thousands of dollars. And <clears throat> um, yeah, it's not to say that these people are missing out on society. We're trying to prevent them from, you know, um, removing their breasts and getting their penis removed. 
um, because that's what this is all really about. Um, and we are talking earlier about the misinformation project that recently came out and what they were writing in about that and um, how they've talked about um, trans genocide and the violence towards trans has escalated, um, the anti-trans movement and even referring me, my, myself and other females as being neo-Nazi. Um, and that's again, they love they the love that word, don't they? They love that yeah. word. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. Doesn't matter if you've never made a racist remark in your life. If you disagree with the ideology, the disinformation project will call you a Nazi. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so yeah, and and some of that they've talked about yeah trans genocide and um, it's like well actually yeah we agree with that. I agree with you. There is a, a trans genocide going on because there's these individuals in society that are confused and um, not loving themselves. And you guys are giving them puberty blockers and sterilizing them. You guys are giving them drugs that, you know, um, cause significant damage to their body and then promoting surgeries that medically um, kind of mutilate them. So, um, yeah, trans genocide definitely happening, guys. Yeah. And they're, and they're using it on trans people to stop them. Yeah, it's it's absolutely horrific. But do you have a problem with adults that decide to go and transition or is your problem mainly with the youth? Um, well, yeah, my, my focus is mostly on the youth because um, at the moment what we have in New Zealand is we've got legislation being put in place <clears throat> to um, allow this to take place. And then we have documents that um, the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education have um, released within the sphere of um, the New Zealand government. Um, and so what's going to happen is we're going to see an increased trend of children coming through mental health facilities thinking that they're trans or um, <clears throat> genderqueer or I don't know, whatever, um, are they them. Um, and so what we're saying is, well, internationally, this stuff doesn't work, guys. We've already had got 703 children on puberty blockers. Um, it's a medical experiment. So um, let's stop it there. Like, let's stop this right now. And so the teachers, like, and um, and principals, you, I, I have heard that they do feel very uncomfortable about the sexual education guidelines. And so what I can, yeah, what I'd like to say, and and I know another other clinicians and people behind me will agree, is just put them in the shredding block box. Like put them in the shredding box. And same with these, this as well. It can go in the in the shredding box. Um, it's not up to scratch. There's so much stuff in here that is so dangerous. Um, and as a clinician, you are going to be putting your your practice and your whole life on the line by using these drugs on on these children. Um, like it's written like this, where it's just so easy, just a half page, and then they sign sign it, and that's your half your life signed away, really. Um, it's scary, isn't it? And you mentioned earlier that you worked not only in mental health but also in paediatrics. Did you see an uptick of people that were um, young young people specifically that were coming in for gender treatment that also had issues with their mental health? Um, 
in the facility I worked on a mental health within the last couple of years before I left, um, I was I recorded. Um, we had six because um, I'm in the South Island, so um, maybe a little bit different down here, not a big city. Um, and that three of them were adults, and three of them were um, under twenty. <clears throat> so definitely, it was because of the social trend that at the at, at the time that this is occurring. And um, <clears throat> yeah, what's on on social media? Oh, and definitely um, from uh, Australia, there is a clinic over there that wrote papers about um, how they were being how they were dealing with the, these youth that were coming through, and that yeah, high rates of autism and um, ADHD and family issues as well. So that's definitely a part of it, and. I can also see and yourself as well and, and lots of other people listening in like we've had trends when we're teenagers the 70s trend the 80s trend the 90s trend and something that I like to say is bring back the emo kid um because you know they at least sat there and were depressed and wore black clothes and did some eyeliner and stuff like that rocked to some heavy death metal music and was a bit depressed and stuff but at least they were you know they weren't questioning who who they were as a person they were just you know expressing their discomfort and hatred of being a teenager in in that way and the societal pressure but it seems like now people are finding community through identifying as something bio, biologically impossible yeah yeah it's really um it is a really interesting social contagion for sure and I also think that that is possibly due to due to a lack of um, education, possibly in high school uh, regarding um, human anatomy, um, because not everybody is is told um, that girls have ovaries. Um, we did question one time some protesters that were there holding the trans flag and young girls just going along with it and just you know it's just. Um, being part of a protest movement and things and and we're asking them about well can can boys get pregnant do, do girls only have ovaries and um you know the answers weren't very weren't very good um i've also questioned some people at otago university and i stood there uh protesting one time because um radio um Radio One at Otago University had um, some anti-trans people come and um, do their ad. And so I went and stood at um, university Some anti-trans or some pro-trans? No, yeah, pro-trans. Oh, okay. anti-turf. Anti-turf, okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah pro-trans. Um, and so when I stood there on the university grounds, I did ask some people there as well about, well, humans can't change sex and things and one girl said, um, you know, clownfish change sex. And I was like, well, yeah. And another person about um, if if I, you know, got a dog fixed, a boy dog fixed, is that going to make him a girl dog? And then she <laughs> said, if 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 the dog feels like that. Oh, my gosh. Um, so <laughs> but this is the point, isn't it? It's crossed into absurdity. Yeah. It's, it's crossed into absurdity. Like we're no longer living in a realistic like world, you know. People no longer have a a worldview based in reality. 
it's based in some kind of fantasy land where I think it's very much you can do whatever you want, be as fluid as you want in every single sense. Nothing is real. Everything is just up to your feelings. And that's really the problem because we're seeing that infiltrate into every area of people's lives. And I think for the youth, it just results in them being completely overwhelmed by society and having absolutely no hope for their future because they're not given any vision. They're not given any goals. They're just told, be how you feel. And that's such an ambiguous thing to tell someone that's young and struggling to find themselves. Yeah, definitely. And this whole thing, like years ago, I was like, oh, I don't even want to talk about puberty blockers. Like, I don't even want to put it into people's heads that this is even an option. Mm. Like, it actually isn't an option, guys. Like, it's it's just um, overall as well in New Zealand, we have to um, ask ourselves a really big question is, do we want this medical experimentation to be taking place here? Um, so, yeah, it's eugenics of psychiatry um, when the uh, the mental health field or psychiatry is and they're just they're treating a mental illness by um, altering the body. And um, that never goes down very well. So same with lobotomies years ago, that was deemed a really amazing thing to be doing. Um and it turns out that it wasn't. So we, we've learned from history. So it's it's not as though we haven't um, been here before in some ways. And in other countries, they have been here. They've done this. Um, they've that they, they've they've done this to children. Um, they've done this to youth and young adults. And now the consequences of that is that these youth now detransition and are talking out about the harmful effects of what's going on. So they're also getting silenced as well because the pharmaceutical industry obviously has a lot of money invested into this. Um, so at the end of my um, report that I wrote, so that's when we were asking about um, what's written in New Zealand and there wasn't anything so that's why I kind of wrote that as well even though I'm not I wasn't doing my PhD or master's I'd still would have got cancelled anyway so <laughs> yeah it doesn't matter what you do if you step on the wrong side of the line even ever so slightly what was the reaction that you had when you sent your report out did you get much feedback from the medical community about that report um I've used it to be able to educate other clinicians um, about it all and so I feel like I've um, yeah done a good job around that um, providing them with evidence from the other from out the other side of it it's not okay and what's happened internationally the questions raised um, and so just don't even go down that that path but I've sent it to politicians um, Elizabeth uh, from the Green Party, she replied, um, but she mostly just said that I was being transphobic, really. Um, that's, that's the shutdown argument, isn't it? It's no, 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 it doesn't matter if this is a chemically castrating drug that we use on sex offenders, um, anything that you say negative about this product or anything to do with anything that's transgender is transphobic. Uh, even if you are transgender, if you say anything about it, you're a transphobe. And it's such an easy way for them to shut down and to silence people. And groups like the Disinformation Project are absolute pros at using that terminology to ensure that people stay silent unless it's on a topic that they approve of. 
yeah definitely um and i think what's really great from all of this at some in some ways is that in new zealand we actually have really great platforms set up already um countering what the government's trying to push through so um i only see like great light at the end of this tunnel because of what's happened in the uk with the shutting down of the um Travis Dot Clinic and also in the US where a lot of states are banning this um, stuff going on. So we're not far behind at all. Um, yeah. It's um it's wonderful to see what's happening around the United States and obviously with the Tavistock Clinic in the UK that was such a win I believe for the children of the United Kingdom for their safety moving forward and I think I'm personally completely fine with any adult that wants to go under any kind of um, surgery anything like that I do think there should be an age limit where they can begin maybe even later say 25 to ensure that they really get over any kind of hurdles that they're going through when they're younger that they're more of a full functioning fully capable adult before they make super super drastic choices um, particularly when it comes like to male to female transitions and whatnot um Jennifer I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to speak with us about what's happening with gender affirming care here in New Zealand really appreciate you giving your time and we will help to fight and make sure that you are not silenced in the future yeah great and I'm more than happy to come back again and and speak more on this because there is a lot um, about it all really and the only other point I wanted would add into all of this is that for New Zealanders to know that with the BDMRR bill this it comes into effect in um, on June the 15th this year so that's where um, someone can go and change their birth certificate online for $55 and there's no um, there's no you know no no safeguards in place so um, as a uh, yeah, a feminist in New Zealand and an older uh, female, and not I'm not a, a teenager, um, and a or a child. So what we have then is we're going to have see more um, adult males who are going to be um, using that um, in ways to access female spaces. So it's going to be putting us at risk. Um, so that's a whole nother talk that we could do on that. But um, there is another really dangerous side that we've obviously seen from Posey Parker with adult males. And so that's probably another topic we could speak on another day. But um, otherwise, yeah, the, the youth are next in line and have been in line. And so people can put those sex ed, um, sex ed guidelines in the in the um, the shredding bin and head to resist gender education um, in New Zealand and then uh, for puberty blockers to learn more and to see research we have fullyinformed.nz all right, we're going to take a break now and when we come back we'll dive further into the Disinformation Project's latest report and the absurd claims that a genocide of trans people is currently taking place here in New Zealand. But before we go, just a reminder, if you want to get in touch, drop us an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio or text us at 2057, that's 2057, to let us know your thoughts and what other topics you would like to hear us deep dive into. You are listening to The Chantal Baker Show. This is Reality Check Radio. RCR with Chantal Baker. Reality Check Radio. 
Welcome back to the Chantal Baker Show. You are listening to Reality Check Radio, brought to you by Operation People. To hear replays of our show on Reality Check Radio, visit realitycheck.radio or head to operationpeople.com where you can listen to replays and you can also sign up to our mailing list and our weekly newsletters. Today we're talking about the Disinformation Project and in particular, the lies that they are spreading that are dividing New Zealanders like we've never seen before. And I say lies because that's the only way you can describe them. In their latest report, The Transgressive Transitions, released last week, they talk of a level of hate and violence towards the trans community in New Zealand that is just simply untrue. Like many New Zealanders, I have no real immediate interest in the trans community because I am not part of it. But I can say that there are many wonderful trans people and I protect people's right to exist and their right to, if they want to, choose surgeries as adults that they are legally allowed to have. But the Disinformation Project seems to want to drive a wedge between New Zealanders by telling a story that trans people are being targeted for real-world violence. And the New Zealand media want to help them drive that wedge because they are reporting these hateful fantasies without asking to see any actual evidence. And they are ignoring the real world evidence that does exist showing quite the opposite. But before the break, we spoke to former nurse Jennifer Scott, who was able to tell us the real dangers to young people that the trans narrative leads itself to. And that was a story about the effects of puberty blockers and so-called gender affirming care that she has seen firsthand as a registered nurse. But more importantly, her story was the balance that is so desperately needed if we are to provide real care to young people who are part of the trans community. In part two of this show, we are going to look into another disturbing part of this story, that the disinformation project led by Kate and Sanjana is spreading the absurd lie that there is a genocide of trans people going on in New Zealand. And I say absurd because there is no genocide of trans people here in New Zealand. According to Oxford Languages, a genocide is the deliberate killing of a large number of people. It happened in Nazi Germany and we found the bodies. It happened in Cambodia and we found the bodies. And unfortunately, it is still happening in parts of the world today. But there is nothing even close resembling that happening here in New Zealand. And it is hurtful, unhelpful and a blatant lie to say that it is. So where is this idea coming from that genocide is going on in New Zealand? In the Transgressive Transitions report under the title Tele Telegram and the Networked Normative Discourse of Genocide, the authors warn us that there is highly violent language and dehumanising frames, particularly against transgender parties. Alistair, what is your thoughts on this headline and what they're trying to frame? This is the dark part for me. Because if we all recall the way that they framed this right from the very beginning, and this is why I brought it up at the beginning, we've done this show before. When we talked about the Posey Parker incident, we went through in that show and showed how they seeded the story all the way through the, the week, if you remember. Yeah. And one of the things that they kept on doing was they used that those those people doing Nazi salutes in Melbourne to frame Kelly J as a neo-Nazi, even though she d expressed her abhorrence to that, they still kept on doing it. And this is what they always do. They use the, the neo-Nazi angle 
to actually, all it really is, is just a thinly disguised attempt to link Kelly J to Nazis, which means to the Holocaust, yep. which is a genocide. And it is a very cynical political ploy. That's, I, I believe that's all that they're doing in bringing this Nazi element into it. And you've, you saw it in the lead up to the Posey Parker event at Albert Park. And we've also seen it in this report, this disinformation project report, the way that they seed it in that as well. It's absolutely, it's so incredibly sad, isn't it? And they talk about a group called the Australian National Socialist Banner Action Against Transvestite Pedophiles. And I mean, it seems to me that there is a lot of talk about transgender and pedophilia and a crossover there in some really fringe alternative groups. But that is the internet. That is fringe people on the internet. Mm. They say some weird stuff that isn't true. It's the internet. But that does not mean that there is a group of people that is actively out there trying to actually harm, physically harm, anybody, particularly here in New Zealand and the trans community. It's just this absurd, yeah. as they mentioned, community bridge that simply doesn't exist. Yeah, the only bridging that's really going on here is them trying to seed this word, this Nazism word, into this discussion so that they can sort of back up their, their genocide claims. Um, and in this particular case, like the one that you're just mentioning there, talking about the um, National Socialist Network um, things that they're talking about there, I mean, these are Australian examples that they're using. That's got nothing to do with New Zealand. That's, yep. that's over there. And like you say, it's... It's uh, it's social media. This is what happens. There are there are people that say strange things on there. It doesn't mean that we're needing to have a complete societal change just because someone wrote something on a Telegram post. The other thing that they do with this is they uh, they link it in this disinformation project report. I find this almost a little bit humorous. They to try and back up their point, they quote themselves, and they quote themselves in an unpublished letter that was written. Uh, sorry, an unpublished analysis that was shared with the Jewish community. And they quote themselves in this thing, which they've obviously written a story or written a, a letter or, or a report or something. They don't actually say what it is. Um, and they've sent it to someone in the Jewish community. Again, they don't say who they've sent it to. But it's, again, they're, they're quoting themselves. They're making things up and then pretending like it is some sort of academic proof. It's incredible, actually, how they're doing this. It's bizarre. And then they're also trying to pretend that this is somehow physical when it's not. Yeah. Yeah. This is just this is just some airy-fairy concepts, comments online, which absolutely I think people shouldn't make nasty comments towards anybody, but that is not real-world harm. That is not actual physical violence in any way, shape, or form. And this is some interesting parts of the analysis. So in 2022, in the unpublished analysis, which was shared with the Jewish community and other scholars, we, being the Disinformation Project, noted that individuals have been seen as playing different roles with and for different audiences. X who's apparently just a random person, who is now integrated into the, um, ingratiated into the anti-vaccine, anti-mandate location of our study, extends his influence and network effect on this community beyond the Christchurch-based social network of far-right activist-linked groups. 
like the Fourth Reich and right-wing resistance, in looping in Y and the white nationalist group Action Zealandia, X signals outright dark web anti-Semitic content on a mainstream Instagram, oh, sorry, Telegram channel, platforming Y's pseudo-scientific analysis to a widest constituency, one which is already acclimatised to casual anti-Semitism, um, as seen in X's use of an anti-Semitic slur. So again, they're not actually inserting references where people have used, I would say, drastic anti-Semitism. They mention um, a anti-Semitic slur, but what does that mean? Because someone could have, uh, if someone uses a comment, like if they say a name about someone, was it actually anti-Semitic or is it something that these people are saying is anti-Semitic? We don't know because they haven't referenced. Yeah, exactly. But here's the, here's the really interesting thing about this is that once they've established that, that, that link to Nazism, to the word genocide, that they're really... The word genocide is there to get, capture people's attention, right? They want to get it into a headline. They want to get it into stories that, that are associated with talk about police and so on, like that, that Radio New Zealand story that we um, dissected the other week that the platform uncovered, where they'd actually tried to seed these things in. Once they get those, those words in there, then that's that's job done for them because they're able to create this level of fear within New Zealand. Um, but then that's when the report, you realise that all they're really doing is trying to attach it to the word genocide, but then reinterpreting the word genocide. And I quote, um, this is again them quoting themselves, by the way. Um, so they're quoting themselves in their own in their own report and the quote goes through the repeated use of dehumanizing language we are studying the strategic shift of social perceptions values and attitudes which is a dangerous speech hallmark the violative language engenders and normalizes the notion that targets must be killed and often urgently mm. so this is the crux of it they're actually trying to redefine the word genocide to say that if someone is to criticize someone, that is normalizing the notion that targets must be killed. They're the ones introducing the word killed here. Yeah, so, so, so apparently some random slur was akin to now all of a sudden they can say that there is such violent language that people are going to be killed. But yet there's no mm. reference to anyone that has been killed because it hasn't happened. It doesn't exist. There's no reference to anyone harming, like mass harming groups of the trans community because it doesn't exist. It's never happened. So because these things aren't happening, somehow, and this is what I mentioned earlier, speech is now so harmful to this group, free speech is so harmful to this group that it's akin to mass murder. Yeah, and that's absurd. It's bizarre and it's absurd, isn't it? I mean, basically, you, you just pointed out before, and I think you, you did right, was that what they're reporting on are just the rantings of people online. And we all know that people say weird and stupid things online all the time. Um, that, that's just what happens. But what these what this report does is quote the rantings of a whole lot of angry people have just been swept up by the anger, which by the way, was incited by the media and the disinformation project in the first place. There's lots of swear words and spelling mistakes. Um, not the kind of things that I necessarily want to be associated with myself either. 
Um, but that's fine. But I it's don't think not- many people do. I mean, they talked about one group that had 2,000 followers. I don't know how long this group's been going for, but that is not very many people, especially if that's a group that's open to everybody around the world. That is a tiny portion of people. So to pretend that this is somehow going to mean a genocide across the country is nothing but pure insanity. It's falsified, absolute fan fiction of people that want to create this terrified stereotype of what the average New Zealander should be feeling. The other thing about this is that, you know, the way that the media report on it without any questioning or anything like that, um, I don't think it takes too much of a stretch for the average person, the normal people like you and I, to look at this and just say, well, that doesn't make any sense. And then you look around outside your window and you walk down the streets and you don't see any of these these things happening. And so generally people just go, okay, well, that's not really happening. I don't see it at all. Um, and so the media and the disinformation project are basically left to construct this sort of narrative in the public sphere without too much pushback at all, is it? aren't they? Yeah, because who would who would push back on them? They run away from any interviews and any conversation outside of who they mm. deem as acceptable to talk with. So I know, like I've tried, I've gone down to hear them hear them speak about me, sat front row and asked them to have a conversation. Kate Hannah ran away, but apparently I'm the one that doesn't like to have conversations with people, even though she ran from me. Sean Plunkett over on the platform has tried to get this woman to talk to him so many times. She doesn't reply to emails, phone calls. They just ignore him. This is what this group. Does. They shut down any conversation and then they'll go on mainstream New Zealand news and say trans hate is genocidal and they're all going to die. They lie. They are open liars that hide from real conversation that might challenge their ideas. Yeah, and you know, I'm just looking here. You mentioned about the way that they they talk about you. Um, The same guy that wrote the smear story about you just the other week, David Fisher, wrote on in the New Zealand Herald on the 5th of May, this is the same day that that Hannah McCallum story came out and stuff. Um, so they've taken the disinformation project report and they've written about it and they try and make it sound like it's an investigative piece or something. So, um, And he, he includes a brief history on the fight for women's and lesbian rights and laws and um, he gives the, the same old false accusation of Kelly J. Minshall being an tr- anti-trans activist. Um, but it's a very hard read because there's zero balance. Um, you either agree with, agree with David Fisher or you're bad, basically. Um, <laughs> he quotes a post by you saying that you're worried about trans women in women's prisons. Um, I'm not, he, he doesn't really say what's wrong with that. He just sort of insinuates that it's really bad. He also quotes a post by Alia, um, the Voices for Freedom co-founder, in which she interviews a person from an organization called Gays Against Grooming. Again, um, is grooming suddenly okay? Because I don't really see what's bad about that. It's a different side of the argument, but it's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? I mean, well, I think it should be, be I think it's wonderful that part that members of the LGBTQ community are standing up against a grooming agenda that is targeting children. They are wonderful. And what's wrong with them participating? Nothing, nothing. But Mm. it goes against the government narrative that this is absolutely fine. There's nothing to see here. There's no conversation to be had. 
because they don't want a conversation to be had. Because if you have a conversation, you understand other, other people's perspectives and then thought changes and they don't want that. They don't want anyone to change what they believe. They want to just press mm. down and make sure that no one tries to stand up for the concept that biological men should not be allowed in women's prisons, should not be allowed in women's sports, should not be allowed in women's spaces. I, I don't understand how that becomes a conversation. I mean, this is not journalism. This is activism. But it's funny because it's a biological and, man, again, telling women how they should yeah. feel about their own rights. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but like, apparently if you're a woman who cares about your own spaces and the spaces of your children, you are somehow some misogynistic, hateful human being and biological men are allowed to write stories um, to produce hate against you. Yeah. Because how dare you care about your own rights? But, you know, that, this is how we know that it's, it's a narrative building exercise because mm. if it wasn't, if it was actually a real story, if David Fisher was actually really particip participating in journalism, he would be wanting to investigate all the different angles and all the different, um, the, the different angles that you were talking about in your post mm. about Women's woman and sorry, trans woman and women's prisons, and what Alia had to say about the gays against grooming. They're obviously points of view, and therefore, should they not be part of the story? And so, that's why I say it's not journalism, it's actually activism. And all they're really doing is leading to that line that genocide, that this is a genocide, and that's just a lie. No one's dying. David Fisher and Hannah McCallum are actually just being extremely untruthful with their positions of power as journalists, you know? Yeah, and he's done this to me on many occasions. I think he's got a real bee in his bonnet about me. Somehow I just mix him up the wrong way. And I find it bloody entertaining. And I don't do interviews with him because I frankly, no, I know his perspective because he's had the same perspective all along. He makes up stories. He lies about me constantly. He lied about me multiple times, wept it on the front page of the Herald. Um, but thankfully, I've got lots of wonderful supporters who just message me to say that I do a wonderful job and to ignore him. Um, we do still have our legal team looking at what we should do against him and also the disinformation project as well so I'm going to drag that out because frankly I'm not worried I don't care how many articles they write about me um, but I will you know I do want to take them to court and so we are doing we are looking at our avenues for that which is nothing but exciting and wonderful news I think for the public of New Zealand <laughs> to ensure accuracy and uh, journalistic integrity moving forward into the future but let's be really, really clear about what is actually going on here. And we covered this in the recent, recent show about trust in media. In that story, we talked about how the Disinformation Project seeded a story and Radio New Zealand followed up with a manufactured police story about threats to the rainbow community. What is happening is, number one, the Disinformation Project are putting out a so-called research that says that there is a danger. Two, the media are co-opting that to report on it, amplify it, and give it credibility without any proof. And three, lastly, they put out this report to that we are talking about today to tie it all up and pretend that it's academic. Presumably, this is all to give it the credibility that it requires for New Zealand politicians to pass hate speech laws, which they've been trying to do for a long time, that the New Zealand public have resoundly rejected up to this point. Laws that will destroy freedom of speech. And when you think about that, think about what Lindsay Perigo said earlier this week on Radio um, Reality Check Radio. 
Those who wish to destroy democracy must first destroy free speech. And it's all been done using the word genocide, a cynical way to capitalise on mass death for their own political gain. So let's examine the idea of genocide in this context. Let's do what the media, so the New Zealand media, should be doing by providing balance. Uh, is this a sensible and responsible use of the word genocide? According to this report, the use of the word genocide is found in the language of genocidality and the visual imagery of genocide. By the way, we also checked and genocidality is not actually a word. <laughs> which is why it sounds so weird to say. The report also talks about the Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention, which sounds very official. And in the Lemkin's Institute, Institute's own website, they define this in questions such as, are people being prevented from meeting, organising or being educated? Is an identity being denied or prevented from legal recognition? Firstly, aren't those all things that Kelly J. Keane was subjected to when the trans activist mob stormed her stage, poured tomato juice all over her and used violence to get rid of her? Secondly, it appears that the word genocide is being co-opted, changed, probably because it's scary and because this group wants a reaction that conforms and doesn't fight back. To discuss what genocide is and how the Disinformation Project is using this word, we have an interview with Catherine Ennis-Carter. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Reality Check Radio. Really appreciate you giving me your time. So Catherine, what is your personal, how, how did the Disinformation Project come to be an issue firsthand for you? What did you experience? Um, well, the reason why I went there is because um, my professional uh, career has been in governance and public management so I always keep an eye on what's happening in public management in New Zealand. Quite often when I'm working overseas the countries that I'm working in people in government they, they know about New Zealand um, they think New Zealand is a leader in all sorts of things including public management and including uh, an egalitarian society so they'll ask me about New Zealand so it's important for me to keep up to date so I'm very interested in this whole disinformation discussion that has arisen around the COVID uh, measures. So um, I went to the seminar for that purpose, particularly because I saw in the, um, in the notification for it that they were going to talk about policy development in, in addressing or countering disinformation. So I wanted to see um, what was being talked about in terms of policy development. So the effect it had on me was um, like being in a, um, a a room full of people who were um, just captured um, into the official narrative and, um, you know, very dutiful followers. Um, there was no questioning of anything that was going to be said, uh, that was said. Um, there was no debate, no um, no alternative opinions. So I was in a room of incredible groupthink, and I found it um, I found it very uh, confronting. Have you found that before, where you've gone to a seminar, particularly one that is discussing a more controversial topic, such as censorship, and not seen any public discourse, not seen any questions, and no debate? No. 
um, that's unusual. And I was alarmed by the lack of questioning, um, the lack of debate, um, given the, the range of, of questions that, you know, could have been asked. Um, there was just nothing. There was just this um, kind of uh, uh, groupthink and, and going along with everything that was said. I've, I've not seen that before, but it has been a characteristic of this whole COVID situation and the disinformation um, uh, propaganda. With the disinformation project, do you find that their work seems heavily biased? <laughs> That's like asking, is an egg an egg? <laughs> um, it's just so biased that it doesn't really have, I, I mean, I've, I've talked about, uh, the thing that en enrages me um, is, first of all, the extremes that they're going to, including extreme language. Um, and, of course, you know, it's it's hugely biased. Um, and there are, you know, the reports that they're turning out um, are so just so disappointingly poor in terms of any real um, academic critical analysis. It's all just rhetoric, you know, dressed up and masquerading as um, academic research. What would you typically expect from a paper such as the ones that they put out in this recent one, um, transgressive transitions or something like that? Well, if I mean a normal part of um, academic analysis, critical analysis is you know a level of, of critical thinking. Um, so you would expect to see intellectual rigor. Um, you would expect to see um, uh, a, a range of perspectives. You would expect to see um, uh, evidence being considered. Um, uh, from you know perhaps both sides of an analysis or, or covering a, a range of parts of the analysis, um, but there's there's nothing like that. It's it's all one way. It's all one commentary. Um, and this is endemic to their approach because um, that project was uh, has been operating since they say February uh, 2020. It was specifically set up. Um, to look at misinformation, disinformation about the COVID-19. And um, you have to ask how they were set up that early when, you know, for most people, COVID was just emerging. But they already had uh, approved resources and approved um, uh, abstract. Um, and I read that abstract very, very early on, which has now been taken off the website. Um, but it basically started with the assumption that there was truth, which equated to the official narrative, um, and everything else was a misinformation. So this has been the way they've continued. So they're not actually looking at any of the um, evidence for alternative opinions at all. Nothing. Yeah, and um, we, we, you do see that when you look at their research now because they constantly talk about far right this, far right that, but they don't seem to give examples of what is centre, what is centre left, centre right, what is what is moving further out of that spectrum. They don't even clarify what far right even is. They just seem to say that anything that the government doesn't like is far right or anything that they don't like is far right. And then that's reinforced by the media who writes articles 
articles pretending that their paper is academic research when it clearly isn't. It's personally infused biases that they then put on paper and pretend that it's legitimate. Exactly. Well, that's what they've done all along. And, of course, they've done it from, you know, the, the, the days of, the, I mean, the Parliament protest was a classic example of the kind of approach that this disinformation project has had uh, from the beginning, where, you know, this is their um, operating mandate. Um, uh, you know, the official narrative is the truth. Anything else is misinformation and disinformation. Um, but what is happening now, which is particularly, I mean, it was really annoying, you know, when they started um, using this ideology and uh, terminology about um, white supremacy. Um, and in the Web of Chaos documentary and the Fire and Fury documentary, you'll recall that there was all this ridiculous positioning about how we had to be very careful of all these websites where... Um, where trans wife um, type, um, uh, no, tr not trans wife, what was it? Trad, um, I can't remember the term now. Turf, trad wife? is it turf or trad wife? Trad wife trad is wife. where, yeah, trad wife. Yes, yes trad wife it was. Um, so uh, these websites where people were looking at healthy food for their children and crochet and knitting and, and braiding blonde children's hair and all this stuff. You know, we had to be very careful of these websites because actually what that was all about was white identity and white supremacy and, and that was the agenda in behind these apparently harmless um, websites. So, you know, there's a lot of incredibly malevolent paranoia um, being used to, to steer people in the direction of, um, and it all has one purpose, which is to discredit. Um, it's to discredit anybody who says anything um, against the official narrative on the COVID measures and the COVID mRNA um, injections. And now it's stemmed even further than that, hasn't it? It's if you question transgenderism being promoted to primary schools and to kindergartners, you're now part of an ex a movement they call extremist. If you're against co-governance, you're part of the movement that's extremist. If you're against even three waters... Yes. If you're fiscally conservative, yes. it seems, you are now the devil's advocate, according to the Disinformation Project. Um, they recently spoke exactly. in, their, in their latest report, they mentioned the word genocide. Now, you have a bit of a more personal history with that word. Would you mind talking to us about how you perceive that word and its importance to you? Well, um, this issue and the careless use of that word is quite close to my heart because um, I spent uh, five years um, living and working in Armenia. I was uh, running some large projects there. Um, and the whole psyche of the Armenian people um, is deeply embedded in the history of the Armenian genocide, which took place in, um, under the cover of World War I, and which is still officially denied by uh, Turkey. And... Um, the Armenian people have fought for decades to have that, those massacres officially recognised as genocide internationally, and many countries have. Um, so after I'd lived in uh, Armenia for a few years, I knew a lot about the Armenian genocide. Um, and then I went to live in Turkey for a year, and I saw the ongoing official denial of that genocide and the ongoing persecution of Armenians in uh, in Turkey now, 
today. And um, and actually, there is a genocide going on in that part of the world right now, um, where Azerbaijan, during two, two, 2020, invaded um, Nagorno-Karabakh, which is the um, a region of Armenia, the disputed territory, and um, and even today they so they took over um, there, and that was never on the international media. Why would you be concerned about the invasion of Ukraine if you're not con also concerned about the invasion of Armenia? And currently there is the blockade. Uh, going on where the ethnic Armenians in that area um, have been are being um, basically blockaded in and basically starved starved out so um, you know so that is that is a real genocide that is going on today it was a genocide that's gone in the past so using a word like genocide um, in the context of this report, where they're trying to say that um, uh, uh, being concerned about or that anti-trans um, is the same as genocide, and this is on the basis um, that um, you're taking a, a people who 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 shouldn't exist, or you don't want to exist, or you deny is, is existing. Um, and so if you're anti-trans, um, you're, you're guilty of, of genocide. So this is an extremely careless um, use of the word. And it, it just, you know, I mean, when I know um, about real genocide, um, you know, this, this is so ethically, morally bankrupt uh, to use a term, you know, it, like that in that context it, it just makes me um, furious and this is but why are they doing this it's important to you know to know so the more that they can use these very extreme terms um, the the more you know likely it is to discredit um, these groups that they're trying to discredit because if you use a word like genocide and we've seen it you know all these other words like um, misogynist, um, fascist, um, neo-Nazi, um, uh, racist, you know, they're banding these terms around to label people. And the purpose of that is to make um, the rest of the population afraid of these people because, you know, the, respo the response that they're hoping for is, oh, I shouldn't listen to these people because they're actually, you know, genocidal, they're promoting genocide. Um, so the purpose is all, to, is, is all the same. It's to make people afraid and to discredit the people that they're, they're targeting. Mm, absolutely. Do you find it ironic the use of the term misogyny when we're talking about taking away women's rights in order for biological men to claim spaces that were never theirs to begin with? Well, a particular tactic that um, the Disinformation Project is using is um, projection. And projection is, um, you know, accusing other people of doing what you're doing yourself. And so this is right through throughout their, um, their whole approach. And um, it's, it's often um, very effective uh, because 
Um, so, and hypocrisy is right throughout this whole commentary because on the one hand, they're labelling um, uh, anybody, for instance, who says anything about um, uh, abortion um, is, is labelled anti-women's rights. A whole lot of other things are labelled anti-women's rights. But when we come to um, issues of concern about women's right, rights that relates to some of, um, uh, some of what's being put forward as the trans agenda or trans rights, um, where women have concerns about some of those aspects, um, it's just labelled anti-trans. Mm. So um, somehow trans rights are superseding women's rights in, in that context. So, you know, this is all um, orchestrated use of hypocrisy um, for, again, for the purpose of, of discrediting. So, for instance, the, the issue of um, misogyny, um, you know, they're saying that, so, so we've morphed from, um, you know, the anti-mandate, anti-COVID measures, um, anti-jab um, uh, uh, concerns, to now um, they're saying that um, the groups who've been associated with that, which we might loosely call the, the freedom groups, um, uh, uh, have morphed to now they're, now they're anti-trans. Mm. And, um, you know, so that this is why I say that, you know, that this, this work is not only extremely poor academic analysis because they're ignoring all the things that there are to be concerned about in the whole trans debate. And, you know, there's a number of them uh, which are, um, you know, if you're trying to take a, 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 an objective analysis, um, women are concerned about women's biology, you know, being written out of the language. Um, so you can't talk about pregnant women anymore. It's supposed to be pregnant persons and persons with cervixes and all this nonsense. So if, if women are con concerned about that, um, oh, they're labelled an anti-trans. Um, you know, people are, not only women, but people are concerned about the promotion of um, gender fluidity, you know, these concepts, and the medicalisation of uh, gender, um, promoting this with um, very young school children. You know, and why are we doing this? Expecting that... Um, you know, that young children can decide at, at five years old what gender they want to be when we don't allow them to drive or vote or get married or do any <laughs> of the other adult things. Um, you know, I mean, most people across the world, are, uh, even the sports bodies are concerned about um, biological men competing in women's sports. Um, but all this, you know, logical um, concerns are suddenly swept aside under a label of anti-trans. So this is the sort of um, this is why I say it's it's so bankrupt, um, both as a as a piece of academic work, but but there's no there's no morality attached to what they're doing. Mm. And that seems intentional, doesn't it? This lack of morality, morality, and then the insertion of ideologies that we've never seen before in our country. But if we don't adopt them overnight, we're some sort of violent extremist that has no care in our hearts for anybody else. Yes, it, it is unusual. It's, um, it's emerged with this whole um, COVID thing. And what it tells you is that the official, it's so important 
um, for the um, official narrative to be maintained and believed, um, that these are the links that are now being gone to. So, um, and I think that it's actually running in parallel with the accumulating evidence, particularly about the adverse effects of the mRNA jabs. Um, the, the ramping up of all this disinformation rhetoric is, is kind of running in parallel like with that. So the more evidence that comes out, the more they've got to double down on the, on the uh, rhetoric. Mm, precisely. Hey, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us to give your insight into the disinformation project and what they are doing wrong, where we as house can be going better. We really appreciate us giving you your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, pleasure to, to talk to you and, um, Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to take a break now. And when we come back, we're going to bring in our Operation People colleague, Phil, who's going to tell us a little bit more about the disinformation project and what he's found out about who they are and what their backgrounds are. Phil is a brilliant mind. He's a scientist. He's ex-Special Forces. And he does a wonderful job investigating what's really going on politically and what is motivating these ideologically driven groups. Before we go, just a reminder, if you want to see and hear more from me, pop over to operationpeople.com, sign up, and you'll find all of our latest content on RCR and on our social media platforms. This is The Chantelle Show. You're listening to Reality Check Radio. RCR with Chantelle Baker, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to The Chantal Show. You're listening to Reality Check Radio. And today we are discussing a new report out by the aptly named Disinformation Project, who are some of the largest disinformation pro producers here in New Zealand. They've put out a new report called The Transgressive Transitions. It's supposed to be an academic report on how trans people in New Zealand are facing extreme hate, both in the real world and online. The only problem is it doesn't have much academic study in it or research. It's full of words which sound dangerous but are very light on evidence and even lighter on balance. But most dangerously, it is attempting to silence and divide New Zealanders through an obvious process of one, drumming up online discussion through absurd claims of Nazism and linking those claims to genocide, two, co-opting the media to amplify the message and give it credibility, and then three, reporting on it as if they are nothing but dispassionate observers. And like we've already discussed, this is all presumably to provide the so-called evidence that New Zealand politicians need to pass their hate speech laws that the New Zealand public have so roundly objected to. Laws that will destroy freedom of speech. Uh, and I repeat what Lindsay Perigo said earlier this week on RCR. Those who wish to destroy democracy must first destroy free speech. So who is it that's doing this? And is there a credible argument to be made to say that democracy is under attack in this country? What do you think, Alistair? I think there is a very credible argument to be made that democracy is under attack because what they're saying with all of this stuff, and they've, they've done it right from the beginning. Let's be clear. The disinformation project comes from the COVID cult era. And I call it a cult because the way they got everybody to basically hate on anybody that had an alternative point of view was very cultish. Mm. And that's where the disinformation project comes from. 
you know, we heard it all the way through all of that. You know, the worst thing that's going on here, it's disinformation is endangering lives and all of this stuff. And all it was was alternate points of views. And so to me, what it's about is saying, if you disagree with us, we're going to vilify you. We're going to silence you. And we're going to do it very publicly. We're going to do it in the newspaper um, so that your friends and family see it. And that'll be a warning for them not to do it as well. And, you know, that, that's, that's what we've seen all the way through these last three years. And I think that that's just a continuation of this. But I haven't had as much of a, um, a much contact with the Disinformation Project as you have. Mm. What have your experiences been with the Disinformation Project? How did you come to find out about them in the first place? And then you also went along to one of their meetings, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I love stuff like this because I like debating people. I like having conversations with people. So to me, um, when I found out that one of them, Kate, was speaking in Dunedin, I was like, all right, I could drive five hours and go and listen to someone have a chat. So I called up Farmer James and I said, are you free? <laughs> Do you want to come with me to come and hear a chat? Because I don't want to be by myself because I don't know if some of these people are violent or whatever. So I just wanted to make sure I had someone with me. So Farmer James came with me and Lingo Louie was at my house because he missed his flight over to Sydney or Melbourne or something. So I said, do you want to jump in the car and let's do a road trip? So next minute, there we were down there listening to Kate Hannah speak. And I sat very front row because I didn't want to try and hide. I wanted to make it very obvious that I was there. So I sat front row. Um, but it was funny because then an article came out about this much later where the writer tried to pretend that I'd hidden away in the crowd. I was like, I was sitting front row. I'm sorry that she couldn't identify me, but they said we had to wear masks and I was sitting front row. <laughs> But anyway, this was the era of masks as well, right? So, yeah, I, mean, you're, I had you're to. They said you couldn't go it, in without wearing masks. But then apparently, but you're then hiding. they'll accuse you of. But then they'll accuse you of disguising yourself. Yeah, and that she was wearing a cap. It's like yeah, because I was. It's. I was in relaxed activewear. I always wear my cap because my hair's a mess and it takes a lot of effort to try and put it together. But yeah, apparently because I was wearing a cap and a mask, which they said we had to, um, I was somehow disguising myself, sitting one meter from Kate. Maybe she's just actually not a great researcher. Um, she did. did she at the talk end, to you? at the end, they did a question time, and I put my hand up because I wasn't interrupting. I put my hand up, and she was like, "Oh yeah, do you have a question?" And I took off my mask then, and I said, "I don't know, but my name's Chantal Baker, and you said that I'm effectively head of the disinformation uh, dozen here in New Zealand, and I want to know what, how you classify something as being disinformation, because you've also tried to say that I'm pro the Kremlin, which is an outright lie. So is that not disinformation in itself?" And she would not answer me. She, and you can watch so, that video. People can watch that video. It's on YouTube. Yeah. I recorded the entire thing. I go back and forth with her. I ask her about her funding because she, um, I ask her about her funding because she tries to imply that she wasn't funded by the government. And we have an OIA that shows that at that time, she was indeed funded directly from the Prime Minister's office. So you have Prime Minister Jacinda mm -hmm. Ardern at the time with her own little cohort of people that are claiming to be independent, that are getting government directly, so that are getting financed directly from her office to produce apparent disinformation reports on whatever they want. So they're allowed to make up whatever they mm. want. Jacinda Ardern will pay them for it as long as it fits the narrative that she's wanting to set. And we see them continue to do this to this day for the Labour Party. 
I see this, you know, one of the things that they talk about in this report is and is they talk about it as saying that this is mostly imported from overseas. And it was the same accusation that our former prime minister leveled at the protesters in Wellington. She said mm-hmm. it seemed like it smelt like it was imported. It was a, it was foreign influence and all of that. Um, but they, to be honest with you, I see the foreign influence in exactly what you're talking about here in that I've seen, um, uh, we, we've seen, remember Hillary Clinton called mm. Trump supporters the basket of deplorables. Um, this, this ability for politicians, and in what you're talking about, this was the prime minister's office engaging the disinformation project or establishing the disinformation project to attack New Zealanders, just like Hillary Clinton was attacking Trump supporters, American citizens, politicians, this foreign influence of politicians attacking the people in their own country when they're supposed to be representing everyone. The most interesting thing about that whole notion of imported is that when I, the very first time I heard about the disinformation project was in the middle of the protest. They came out with a report saying these are the top dozen disinformation producers. But I think they actually had 13 people in there or groups, but they were the top <laughs> dozen. But this disinformation dozen comes from around the world. Around the world, different groups, just like the Disinformation Project, have come up with a disinformation dozen well before it was introduced here in New Zealand. So that itself, the very first time I heard about them, that is imported. So it's a lot of this stuff, it just seems like it's projection. It's it's like they, they know that that's going to be something that they're going to be accused of. Mm. Because you're right. I remember hearing about the disinformation dozen from the UK and the United States, and I believe maybe also Canada. Yeah. Um, it, it's just lockstep all the way through, isn't it? And this is not surprising because when you look at groups that are heading up the so-called disinformation research, they are all interconnected. As we've heard from Phil, the, the um, Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is a UK-based think tank, they are helping all of these different groups to actually implement their own ideologies in specific countries. So this is not isolated. There's a reason they always accuse everyone else of doing exactly what they are doing. It's that they are spreading disinformation, they're doing it in an organised way with an organised community around the world, then they're trying to pretend that anyone who doesn't like what they're doing is somehow an imported ideology, which is exactly what they are doing themselves. And so that leads us into our next part, which is the interview with our Operation People colleague, Phil, and what he's learned about the disinformation project. He's done a couple of Intel reports um, for, for the Operation People channel about this, hasn't he? And what he's found, you mentioned the word ideology in what you just said there, and principle in the ideologies for the disinformation report is the director, Kate Hanna, and her ideology of Marxism, which she's actually proudly pronounced, which I have absolutely no problem about, actually. If she wants to be a Marxist, that's absolutely fine. But if she's going to wield such power across New Zealanders and tell us that we're not allowed to speak about these subjects or just leave us completely out of these reports and smear people like yourself, then that's probably not a good look. But anyway, that's, um, that's all going to be in your interview with Phil, isn't it? 
Absolutely. So without further ado, I introduce the wonderful Phil. Phil is ex-Special Forces here in New Zealand. He's worked internationally in anti-human trafficking. He's also a microbiologist. He's a trained scientist. He's a wonderful, wonderful human being with a phenomenal memory. And he has a real skill for open source intelligence gathering, which is exactly how he has found out the following information on the Disinformation Project. Phil, Thank you for being part of OperationPeople.com. Welcome to Reality Check Radio. Thanks very much, Intel, for having me on. You've been doing a big deep dive open source research over the last year into the disinformation project. Do you think they're as independent as they claim to be? Um, not not necessarily. I mean, it's, it's hard to uh, figure out exactly where they're getting their funding from, um, who they answer to. Uh, and especially now, since uh, mid-2022, they went independent. So it makes it a wee bit more difficult to to find that information because uh, while they were under Auckland University, they were actually subject to the Official Information Act. Uh, now that they've gone independent, it's a wee bit harder to find that information and some of their business details and things have been uh, redacted in some of the Official Information Act uh, requests, responses that we have actually had so far. So so they're a wee bit harder to track down. Um, but but we can see that they've had government funding from New Zealand. Uh, and and there, are other, there are other similar organisations such as the Institute for Strategic Dialogue that are performing very similar functions to the Disinformation Project. Although those uh, that particular organisation is much, much, much bigger than the Disinformation Project. It, uh, that organisation makes the uh, Disinformation Project look like just a uh, child's play. <laughs> so do you think that there is kind of a larger network of disinformation groups and organisations that are working together and sharing information? Have you found any evidence to suggest that? Yeah, the Disinformation Project are definitely citing other organisations such as the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Um, and so there are other organisations out there. Again, uh, I'm, at the moment I'm looking at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Uh, that organisation uh, also has uh, connections transnationally. So they have uh, connections across uh, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, the US, they're getting funding from the US uh, as well as other sources of funding. Uh, that, And so I, I would say that these organisations are very closely related. Uh, looking at some of the individuals behind the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, we can see that they're linked into things, uh, organisations like the Aspen Institute, of which we have a branch here uh, with patrons such as Bill English and Helen Clark. Uh, been involved in that and and again that's another transnational uh, institute and a, a lot of these uh, types of institutes that we're finding behind this sort of censorship machine are or I, I guess I, I just talked to some Americans this week and and they term it as the uh, censorship industrial complex um, and so so we are actually finding a lot of information on some of these other other groups that they are linked to and uh, it is transnational it's pretty big and they some of these groups actually claim to be uh, bridging the gap between governments media 
and the public sector and academia as well. That's really interesting because they use the term uh, bridging, but they use it as these dangerous, you know, potential Nazis are bridging between topics. But it's interesting that they seem to do the same thing in reverse when they're bridging between topics that suit what they want to discuss as well. They claim that they they like to say that people are importing um, ideologies from other countries. Do you think they're importing their terminology and what they're trying to, and their ideology? Do you think that's more of an imported strategy from overseas or do you think that that's purely created on a local level? Yeah, I I do think there's a lot of imports uh, around the globe. And I think that's just, in my opinion, that's just the nature of communication these days. Uh, I mean, we have social media platforms, we have internet, and and that is a worldwide web. So that is actually spanning those gaps. So I think we we are inevitably inevitably going to actually pick up on some of those those trends from others from overseas, and that's going to happen on both sides. Uh, and, and I would say so. Some of the research that they're actually picking up there may actually be you know, valid research where they are picking up on some of these trends, maybe the weight they give it and the fact that they're not looking into groups uh, such as Antifa and and the Black Lives Matter, uh, which would be sort of the other side of the spectrum, um, you know, is, is probably a bit concerning when they're sort of claiming to be this organisation that's investigating uh, extremism and misinformation and disinformation and things like that. So they... They, they're definitely uh, importing ideas from around the world and they're definitely uh, not importing ideas from around the world in the sense that they are uh, leaving some ideas buried. Which ideas are they leaving buried? So so that would be the the ideologies uh, that, that are characteristic of the far left. So you don't really see them report on those and, and that's actually potentially because they, they sit there themselves. Now, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, uh, they actually do touch on the on the far left extremism, and they do include uh, some of the ideologies that we do see in New Zealand uh, as part of their definitions of uh, left wing extremism. However, they in, in the reporting that they've produced for New Zealand, they they don't really go into left wing extremism, and in some of their reports, they actually have an outdated version of left wing extremism, taking the older sort of communist approach uh, that that looked at ec- economics, and they haven't really updated their their model or definition of left wing extremism to account for the sort of cultural Marxist uh, uh, form of neo-Marxism or left-wing extremism that we see today. How would you classify Kate Hanna's ideology? Because you have done a number of open source investigative pieces about Kate Hanna. Do you think that she identifies as a Marxist? Do you think she identifies as conservative? How would you frame her ideology? Yeah, well, we can we can only really look at what she's written, and and I mean, I only really like to uh, take their words and just say here, here, here's what they've done, here's what they've said, and so, so she framed herself as as sort of um, understanding herself in the critical advances of the twentieth and twenty first century. So the critical advances would be would be what we would class as critical theory. 
Um, and, and within that, she talked about um, post-colonial theory, Marxism, uh, and feminism. And, and when you track the the ideology behind those movements together in light of the critical theoretical advances, you would actually put her as as um, under the Institute for Strategics dialogue as, as being fairly uh, far left herself. How would you classify Sanjana Hattatawa's ideology? Do you think he sits in a similar space to Kate Hanna? Yeah, he's he's a little bit harder to define uh, or, or to to understand in terms of his political position. I mean, he he definitely uh, agrees and and works alongside uh, these people from the same sort of framing angle. Um, it's 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 harder from his material because he doesn't make such an overt admission as to claiming that there's certain things that form his identity and what he uses in his work as, as say, Kate Hanna has done. Um, so it's a wee bit difficult to actually really nail it down. Um, but we can actually look at his, his writings at, at groundviews.org. And so that was his citizen journalism website in Sri Lanka. And we can see that he he very much took that sort of hard anti-Trump line and he even compared the president that he shows quite a lot of disdain and contempt for as as being someone who's akin to Trump. And so he's made that uh, that very clear. Now, regardless of, of whether you like Trump or not, it, it does indicate sort of uh, that political distancing uh, from from sort of that side and the fact that he's willing to draw those parallels uh, of his own president in Sri Lanka uh, to those of, of Donald Trump in the United States uh, in a disparaging way indicates to me that he's, he's probably very aligned with the ideology that uh, Kate Hanna professes to, to follow. You are a trained scientist. You know how to look at things objectively. Why does this group struggle when it comes to putting forward an objective perspective? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, very happy to uh, investigate right-wing extremism and left-wing extremism. You know, I don't like Nazi ideology. I don't believe in white supremacy. Um, so to me, you know, going and, going and investigating those those ideologies is, is no problem at all. I, I haven't really done a lot of work on that yet. I've, I've sort of been saving some data on that. I've been looking around a wee bit in, in that field. Um, the fact that they're doing a lot of that work for us sort of means, well, you know, there, there is a spotlight there. And I, I think part of our role as sort of the alternative side of media is, is really to present another perspective and to, in some respects, cancel out, cancel out what you call uh, the agenda-setting effect. Um, and, and the agenda-setting effect is the, the media uh, can tell you, uh, don't necessarily tell you what to think, but they tell you what to think about. And, and so part of our role is, is to actually get in there and say, well, hang on, here's something else to think about. And so that's sort of why uh, we're investigating more this left-wing extremism side because it doesn't seem to be covered at all and there's a lot going on there um, and so I think people really need to see that other side and and to to actually understand well what else is going on. 
But why do you think this group doesn't try to show the other side? Why do you think they are very um, biased in their perspective? Yeah, I, I think for them, they are not so much uh, objective scientists. I think they're more um, part of that sort of culture war themselves. So they're sort of masquerading as academics, but they're actually uh, taking a one side of the story. And we can see that in their latest report. The whole thing was just full of, uh, you know, far-right neo-Nazi sort of um, research where they were looking into these groups and centering around that Posey Parker event, they actually skip over the events on the day. They say, you know, beside what happened at the actual event and and they, they skip over what actually happened from the crowd. They skip over, say, the, the sort of communist flags that were flying in the, in the crowd, things like that. So they, they don't really shine a light on the ideology that's driving that side. And if you look in their Twitter circles, and in fact, I was doing some uh, work where I used the very tool that they're using today. Um, I, I use that tool to have a look at some of their circles and they're, they're very much, uh, and, and we'll probably publish on this later, but they're very much in, in the circles with the likes of Antifa um, and, and, and some of these other sort of socialist groups as well. So they're, they're very overtly, uh, socialist, and, and if we apply the same analysis to them, we can start to see that they're very much associated with some of the groups that are actually on the far left themselves. So it's okay to be biased as long as you're sitting on the side that they agree with. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Phil, to talk with us about the Disinformation Project, their biases, and what is happening behind the scenes here in New Zealand. Really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks very much, Chantel. Keep up the good work. So why is it that this group is seemingly so well connected and yet they like to pretend that they are independent? How do they keep getting away with that? I just find it really incredible how somebody with Kate Hanna's background in Marxism and she's unashamedly Marxist, she talks about it quite proudly, um, is given this sort of soapbox, eh? Mm-hmm. It's really quite incredible. It's fascinating someone that likes to push this idea of Marxism, which, as we know, has never worked in any country around the world. But I think it's quite symbolic of deep-rooted narcissism because you would have to be a narcissist to keep thinking that this ideology that's never worked in any other country, if you do it the right way, it'll finally work in yours. You're either absolutely naive or a narcissist. And I think that what we've seen from this group, they do fall within the narcissistic category. They don't care about evidence. They don't care about reality. They don't care about truth. They just care about pushing forward their narrative regardless of the consequences, regardless of the real women that are being physically harmed by men in this country. Yeah, and look, Chantel, I think that the message from all of this is really, really, really clear for me. Um, they, they're creating an illusion, and they're using the word genocide to create this particular illusion. And it's an illusion to make it seem that the New Zealand public needs some sort of extra protection. And so I think that's where we're talking about the hate speech laws, right? And it's just a cynical, horrible thing to do, to use the imagery of millions of dead to do it. 
And I don't think it's even actually that clever what they're doing. It's very transparent. The worst slur that you can label someone with is the word Nazi. It silences people. It tells people that if they speak out on the other side of the story, we're going to denigrate you. We're going to vilify you, ridicule you. Your friends and family will read about it in the newspaper. And it's happened to you recently. And in that respect, you're being used by them to say, look at what happened to Chantel Baker. This is going to happen to you as well if you dare to speak out. And so to, you know, I think that that's why we've done this show today, to point these things out, because it's not just about this anti-trans story that it looks like on the surface. Um, this is a much more important story than just about a society coming to grips with the existence of trans people who we've all lived with for our entire lives. We know that they exist. That's not the story. Um, you know, yes, there could be, you could say that there's a rise in transphobic speech, but that's all being curate, sorry, created. And I'd even say curate, curated because there's no organic hatred towards trans people. This is an illusion that's been seeded by the Disinformation Project. It's been written vaguely about without any evidence, and then the media's amplified it and given it credibility. And then they write this report about it to make it sound like it really, really happened. And now we're going to see probably that they're going to end up starting to try and pass laws to limit our freedom of speech. And I find it really, really interesting that the people that are writing about this stuff, people like David Fisher, people like Hannah McCallum, they don't realize how they're being used, but they are being used. And, you know, they may be on board with it right now, either knowingly or unwittingly. We don't know. But one day they're going to be on the wrong side and they're going to get silenced too. That's just what happens with, with any kind of um, uh, communism or, or whatever it is that we're talking about, a dictatorship or whatever, mm. because that's just what happens. And I think I saw, while we were doing the research for this this week, I saw a really good example of exactly that happening on the platform. Um, there was a show hosted by Michael Laws, and he interviewed the Free Speech Union representative, Jonathan Ayling. And in it, they discussed this same report that we're talking about today, and they found themselves on the wrong side. And they were audibly furious. They were complaining about how people were being silenced, and there's no debate allowed. And the report was filled with unsubstantiated rubbish. And all the things that we've been talking about today. But what they're failing to see is that they actually took part and the installing and promoting of this climate of vilification and censorship that we're talking about. They were the ones who vilified and censored the anti-mandate protesters in Wellington. They were part of that. I still remember how, how um, Jonathan Ayling's site was so silent on the subject of freedom of speech. I remember Michael Laws ranting against the protesters on occasion. And when they did those things, they made it possible for all of this to happen now. They took part and the normalization of silencing the democratic right of New Zealanders to speak their mind. And now they're realizing they're on the wrong side. And that's the reality that every New Zealander is going to find if we keep letting these attacks on freedom of speech happen. And You're so right. I, just want, I just want to finish with one thing, and that's the words of Voltaire. I may disagree with you, but I defend to the death your right to say it. Those, that used to be the, the, the motto of newsrooms all over New Zealand. So yes, Kate Hanna, Sanjana, David Fisher, Hannah McCallum, you have the right to say your piece. 
but you do not have the right to silence the rebuttal. And that's what I think is the problem here. It's dangerous and it needs to stop. And at the end of the day, there is there is genocidal action happening here in New Zealand, but we have to keep in mind who the real victims are. And it is the trans community, but as we heard from Jennifer, the registered nurse, it's not the trans community in the way that they're trying to pitch to you. They are sterilizing children. They're encouraging them to go under the knife and get surgeries that healthy children do not need to have that permanently destroy their bodies. They are selling them off to big pharma and encouraging them to be on drugs for the rest of their lives because when you've been on puberty blockers, you then have to take a mirage of drugs that you stay on until the day you die. The medical industry is complicit in the slaughter of healthy young children that are mutilating their bodies and for the sake of an agenda that they do not fully understand. These children that we're encouraging to transition and we're calling it something like body positivity when it's the exact opposite because you're encouraging children to be exactly what they aren't is disgusting. And that's who our society is meant to protect. Children are meant to be looked after in this society. They're meant to be allowed to grow up, to find who they are. And instead, we are indoctrinating them into this ideology that is starting now at kindergarten with kindergarten books. And we're pretending that we can look away and that action isn't meant to happen. Now, we can all agree that everyday biological adults, if they want to go under the knife, get whatever they want done, absolutely go for it. But the real victims here are New Zealand's children, and it's growing every single day. Our numbers are increasing of children that are confused, terrified, desperate for community, and are now being pushed to go into surgery. That is the focus of New Zealand that we should be looking at when we're talking about any type of genocidal inquiry. What are we really doing to our children, the very fabric of our country? This has been the Chantal Baker Show. You're listening to Chantal and Alistair. Hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you for joining us. This is the Chantal Baker Show. You are on Reality Check Radio. RCR with Chantal Baker. Reality Check Radio.